It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this kingpin's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Stateville Correctional Center was the home of the last remaining panopticon in America. The massive circular dome known as the F House, was lined with four stories of barred cells facing a massive armed guard tower. Every sound echoed off the dirty concrete floors. It was so loud, the guards had to use sign language to communicate. The inmates were under constant watch, never allowed a moment of silence or privacy. Every aspect of the prison's structure was designed to keep them in check. Stateville housed 3,200 of the most dangerous men in America. Over the years, its population included Richard Speck, who had tortured and killed eight women at a Chicago hospital, John Wayne Gacy, the killer clown who murdered 33 people in Cook County, Illinois, and Edward Spritzer, a leader of the Chicago Ripper Crew, a satanic cult that murdered 18 women. But the most dangerous of all was Larry Hoover. When he spoke, the inmates listened. He could arrange the murder of anyone who crossed him without ever lifting a finger. When Hoover was locked up, the police thought they'd taken one of Chicago's most dangerous gang leaders out of the game. But they'd only given him a new territory to reign and 3,200 new members to recruit. I'm Howell Hargett. And I'm Kate Leonard. And this is Kingpins on the Parcast Network. Every week, we journey inside the ranks of organized crime rings, from street gangs to mafiosos, to understand how a kingpin or queenpin rises to the top of the underworld. And why they fall. As we follow the lives of infamous crime bosses, we'll explore how money and power change them and how it changed the community around them. In today's episode, we'll investigate how Larry Hoover rose to power as the leader of one of Chicago's most dangerous gangs, the Gangster Disciples. Next week, we'll explore his controversial shift from gang leader to political activist. You can listen to all of ParCast shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, Tune in or your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoy the show, one of the best ways to help us is to leave a five star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, let's dive into the life of Larry Hoover. When inmates arrived at Stateville Correctional Center, it didn't take a full day for them to realize who was really in charge. Not the guards, 
not the strongest, most violent prisoners. It was Larry Hoover. Hoover was sent to Stateville in 1973 at the age of just 23, but he found a new kind of freedom at the maximum security prison. He no longer had to worry about gang wars, police run-ins, or assassination attempts. As long as he kept the guards on his side, he could run his drug empire from the safety and comfort of his cell. To the gangster disciples, one of the most powerful gangs in Chicago, Hoover was known as King Larry, or simply King. When he spoke, they listened. His word was law. The Gangster Disciples, or GDs, counted 20,000 members among their ranks, including more than half of the 3,200 inmates at Stateville. The gang's drug operation brought in an estimated $100 million a year in profits. Hoover may have been behind bars, but he was still running the show. He was the CEO of a nationwide narcotics business, and as long as he could hold weekly meetings with his board of directors, his prison sentence was no problem at all. In fact, it was an asset. At Stateville, Hoover found himself rubbing elbows with high-ranking members of every gang in Chicago. It was the perfect opportunity to forge alliances. And the inmates who weren't gang members when they arrived could be enlisted pretty easily. A lone prisoner was a prime target for assault and rape. Aligning with the gangster disciples offered protection and privileges. Hoover prioritized order. He expected the GDs, both inside and outside of prison, to follow a strict code of conduct. Members were banned from doing drugs and expected to maintain proper health and hygiene. He issued memos throughout the prison, banning his followers from stealing, fighting, or provoking the guards unless he directly ordered them otherwise. They were a street gang with the discipline of an army. Anyone who broke Hoover's rules would be beaten or shot. But for those who obeyed, their fellow gangsters would look after them like family. Hoover had so much sway with the inmates, the guards knew to stay out of his way. If King Larry wasn't happy, he could snap his fingers and throw the whole prison into an uprising. If he said stop, the riot would end just as quickly. As long as he kept his followers in check, Hoover was more or less allowed to do anything. He had visiting privileges, phone privileges. He was let out of his cell whenever he wanted. Some inmates even saw him sneaking his girlfriend into the warden's office for nightly visits. When intimidation wasn't enough, Hoover could always get to the guards with bribery. Some stateful guards were paid $500 to $1,000 a day to help the GDs smuggle drugs into the prison. The better they treated Hoover, the more inmates were drawn to him. It was clear that the GDs were the right gang to align with. By the peak of Hoover's reign in the early 90s, the gangster disciples had grown to an estimated 30,000 members stretching across 35 states. The gang was dealing a million dollars worth of cocaine weekly. If they were a legitimate enterprise, they would have made the Fortune 500. And it was all thanks to King Larry Hoover, the soft-spoken, charismatic leader who directed the action from his maximum security cell. In the words of social worker and author Eugene Perkins, 
The problem is larger than Larry Hoover, and Larry Hoover is not the problem. He's a symptom, and a victim, too. The real problem began in the dark, muddy streets of Chicago at the turn of the 20th century. The city was built on swampland. As the population grew in the late 1800s, businesses and homes were built on stilts to protect from the mud that seeped over the streets. Down underneath was a literal underworld, perfect for illegal operators who wanted to deal away from prying eyes. Chicago's local government was corrupt from the beginning. Bribery and behind-the-scenes alliances were the law of the land. Officials promised to squash the rising crime problem, but they couldn't solve a problem they were so deeply entrenched in. By the early 20th century, the city was controlled by a crime syndicate called The Outfit. Under the direction of Johnny Torrio and Al Capone, this mob ruled the city with illicit money and violence. In 1926, Chicago's mayor, Joseph Klena, swore to rid the city of corruption. In response, Capone kicked the mayor down the city hall steps in broad daylight. He was knocked unconscious. No police action was taken. The mob ruled the city for decades until the 1960s, when a demographic change shook things up. In the 60s, black citizens began leaving the racism and segregation of the South. Some of them moved to Chicago, seeking better opportunities. Larry Hoover's family was a part of this migration. Larry Hoover was born in Jackson, Mississippi on November 30, 1950. He was only four when his mother decided to move to Chicago with Larry and his three younger siblings, hoping for a brighter future. Those hopes wouldn't quite come true. As black families moved into Chicago throughout the 60s, the city's white residents began to flee to the suburbs. Racist housing laws kept black families confined within the city limits, and the result was staggering segregation and poverty. Larry and his siblings still had a relatively happy, peaceful childhood in Englewood, a neighborhood on Chicago's South Side. Like most of their neighbors, the Hoover family wasn't well off, surviving on welfare checks and his mother's odd jobs. Larry helped out however he could, selling magazines on the street, carrying neighbors' groceries for spare cash. They made ends meet, but Larry was still taunted by the luxuries he couldn't afford to buy. Larry was introverted, a strong student, but shy. He had a stutter, and his ragged old clothes didn't earn him any respect either. He felt the pressure to prove himself, so at as early as 12 years old, he took to stealing. He kept a stash of stolen clothes at a friend's house so his mother wouldn't find out. On the way to school, he stopped by and changed his outfit. It was an improvement, but he still felt inadequate, especially compared to the gangsters who were congregating right outside on his street corner. Around 1960, a number of street gangs started popping up in Chicago's black neighborhoods. They were mostly teenagers who banded together to hustle money and sell cocaine, heroin, and marijuana some of the few avenues for profit available to them in the racially segregated city. The gang that ruled Larry's part of Englewood was called the Supreme Gangsters. 
there were about 50 members, older teens who congregated at the intersection of 68th and Green, right outside Larry's apartment window. Larry's mother warned him to stay away from them, but the 12-year-old was entranced. They had money and power. Even more, they had respect. The streets were violent and chaotic, but the gangsters always seemed in control. Larry Hoover wanted to join. His mother was strict. He always had to be home before the streetlights came on. But once she went to bed, Larry slipped out the window and started running with the Supreme Gangsters. He was only 12, about to be 13, but that wasn't unusual. Most of the Supreme Gangsters were in their later teens, but they'd started out when they were around Larry's age. Now, a few years into the game, the older boys were happy to take Larry under their wing. One of his best friends was Andrew Howard, an 18-year-old who'd been in the Supreme Gangsters since it was founded six years earlier. Andrew saw something in Larry. Beneath his quiet exterior, he was sharp, charismatic, a natural-born leader. After years of feeling bullied and out of place at school, Larry now had the unconditional protection of his 50 gang brothers. When he was wearing his gang's colors, black and tan, he was untouchable. Of course, there was violence. There were a half dozen gangs fighting for ground in and around Englewood, and it was nearly impossible to keep track of who was allied with who or who controlled what block. When everyone is armed, even the most minor dispute can end in blood. Hoover was fascinated by the guns the gangsters carried. In his own words, quote, Everyone believed violence and guns were the best way to settle conflicts, to get real respect and power, the only way to be recognized as someone important. And I found myself believing this also, end quote. Hoover wasn't content to be a member of the Supreme Gangsters. He wanted to be the leader of the pack. He'd always been a smart kid, and now he had somewhere to channel his drive and intelligence. Andrew Howard and some of the other boys were already starting to follow his plans. But he was only a new recruit. He still had to sneak out the window to hang out with his crew. And if he wanted respect from the older veteran members, he'd have to take it. In 1964, the leader of the Supreme Gangsters, Alex Rain, was killed. Rumors swirled that 13-year-old Larry Hoover was behind it. This was never proven. But whether he was responsible or not, the Supreme Gangsters were now lining up behind Larry Hoover as their new leader. In an environment like this, you were either predator or prey. And Hoover wouldn't accept being the prey, not for a second. Coming up, we'll explore Hoover's reign as the boy kingpin of the Supreme Gangsters. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. It was 1964. 13-year-old Larry Hoover had just become the leader of one of the most powerful gangs in Englewood, Chicago. 
Hoover had confidence and charisma beyond his age, and he knew the right words to make the others fall in line and follow his orders. He appointed 19-year-old Andrew Howard as his second-in-command and set his sights on making the Supreme Gangsters the most powerful gang in Chicago. The gang made their money by extorting the other criminals in the area. Gamblers, pimps, drug dealers, and the like. They also sold drugs of their own, like most gangs in Chicago. His mom still had no idea he was in a gang, much less leading one. That fall, he started high school, kept up his grades, and joined the school basketball team. But outside of class, most of his social circle was made up of gangsters. He made friends with 13-year-old Jerome Shorty Freeman, who ran the Black King Cobras in a different part of Englewood. Shorty was around Larry's age, but he'd been a founding member of the Cobras when he was only nine. He also hung around with Shorty's friend, David Barksdale, a 17-year-old who had founded the Devil's Disciples in Hyde Park. David was older, respected, articulate. Larry immediately looked up to him as a sort of role model. The gang leaders all shared a common enemy, the Blackstone Rangers. The Blackstone Rangers were fighting to take over Englewood and control the entire South Side. They had about 200 members and were a force to be reckoned with. Shorty's and David's gangs, the Cobras and the Disciples, had joined forces to fight back, and Hoover was looking at getting in on the alliance too. But one crucial mistake shattered the peace and threw the Chicago gang world into chaos. In 1965, Larry Hoover stole Shorty Freeman's girlfriend. The facts are still out on whether or not Wendy Jenkins was still dating Shorty when she started seeing Larry. Regardless, both of the 14-year-old gang leaders were willing to go to war over the issue. From that moment on, the Cobras and the Supreme Gangsters were sworn enemies. One thing was certain, Larry and his gang were never going to be allowed in Shorty and David's alliance. The Supreme Gangsters were now on their own against a city full of rivals. That fall, Larry went back to school for his first day of sophomore year. He was just outside of the principal's office when he was shot in the leg by a rival gang member. Larry had so many rivals, it's impossible to know who to pin it on. But the principal didn't care to dig into it. Larry was expelled. And just like that, his future was decided for him. If Larry wanted power and respect, he would have to gain it through his gang. The next January, David and Shorty's gangs, the Cobras and the Disciples, officially merged into a unified group called the Black Disciple Nation in a bid to fight off the Blackstone Rangers. By now, their membership numbered in the thousands. Just a few months later, the Blackstone Rangers came together with several smaller gangs to form a group they call the Black Pea Stone Nation, matching the size of the Black Disciples. Both sides were beefed up and ready for a war over Englewood. And right in the middle of it stood the Supreme Gangsters. Larry scrambled to form alliances with a few smaller groups. They were still small in comparison to the other gangs, but they were bold and willing to stand their ground. The Black Peastone Nation, 
the Black Disciple Nation and the Supreme Gangsters were now locked in a three-way standoff. Anyone who stepped onto the wrong block was at risk of igniting an all-out war. In the summer of 1966, Martin Luther King Jr. led 700 demonstrators through Marquette Park in a mostly white section of Chicago. The city's gang members turned out in droves to join the march. Larry watched it in amazement. The warring gangs were all after the same thing, equal opportunities and respect. If they were able to set aside their differences for one march, why couldn't they end the violence altogether? But the income of the drug trade was more pressing than the lofty ideals of civil rights. As long as Larry and his neighbors were pushed to the bottom of the social food chain, they'd do whatever it took to fight their way to the top. For the next year, Larry's supreme gangsters came into constant conflict with the Black King Cobras. Shorty Freeman wouldn't give up his grudge and Larry wasn't about to stop fighting back. Things finally came to a head in 1967. A massive fight broke out between the Supreme Gangsters and members of Shorty's Black King Cobras, who were now part of the Black Disciple Nation. The details of the fight have been lost to gangland history. Those involved only remember that it was vicious and bloody. And by the end, the Supreme Gangsters emerged victorious. Shorty's crew was defeated so badly that hundreds of them immediately flipped to join the Supreme Gangsters, even though the Black Disciple Nation was a much bigger group. The personal feud between Larry and Shorty cooled down, and the Supreme Gangsters had proved themselves formidable. Now, Larry had his eyes set on expansion. The Supreme Gangsters set their sights on conquering the entire south and west sides of Chicago, and the further they reached, the more they came into conflict with their rivals. By the time he celebrated his 17th birthday in November 1967, Larry had been shot six times. The details of the Supreme Gangsters' operations are hazy, but they were probably still making their money the same way they always had, selling drugs and extorting local gamblers, pimps, and drug dealers. Whatever they were doing, it was working. By 1969, the Supreme Gangsters reached 5,000 members. They were finally on par with the size of the Black Disciples and Black Peastones, and they weren't about to slow down. The other gangs knew to watch their backs. In January of 1969, the leader of the Black Peastones, Jeff Fort, approached Larry with a truce. If the Supreme Gangsters and the Black Peastones teamed up, they'd be twice as powerful. They could easily get rid of the Black Disciples and rule the city together. He offered Larry some of his territory and a top position within the new alliance. Larry would be giving up control of his own gang, but he'd be gaining territory and with it, money. Larry was only 18, but he knew how to play the game. He had a tactical eye for deals that would help him gain power and influence. He agreed. The new alliance was known as the Gangster Stones. The news of the merger didn't trickle down very quickly. There were thousands of members in each gang, and even after a few months, some members had no idea their rivals had become their allies. Among them were two Black Peace Stone members, Lonnie King and Charlie Smith. 
At about 1.30 a.m. on May 7, 1969, Lonnie recognized a Supreme Gangsters member named Ronald Vandergrift walking through Englewood. He caught up with Ronald and told him to stop crossing into the Black Peace Stones territory. Ronald told Lonnie about the merger, but Lonnie didn't believe him. He hadn't heard anything about it. As they turned the corner, they ran into another Black Peace Stone, Charlie Smith. Charlie didn't know about the merger either. He told Ronald to stay out of his gang's territory. Ronald tried to protest, but Charlie pulled out his revolver. Ronald was shot two times. He ran out into the street, then fell to the ground. The gunshots caught the attention of two more Supreme gangsters who were walking nearby. They ran over to pull Ronald up, then carried him off as Charlie and Lonnie kept shooting. Ronald was taken two blocks away to Larry Hoover's family apartment on 68th and Green. Larry's brother Charles sent them off to the hospital. Luckily, Ronald survived his injuries. When Larry heard about the misunderstanding, he was furious. Gang mergers were supposed to bring peace, not lead to more confusion and violence. Four days later, on May 11th, leaders of the Black Peace Stones and Supreme Gangsters held a meeting to reconcile. They discussed the shooting and decided it had been an accident, since Lonnie and Charlie didn't know about the merger. The council that came to this decision was made up entirely of Black Peace Stones. The Supreme Gangsters had no choice but to accept their conclusion and reconcile. This was only one of the problems within the new alliance. Larry had quickly realized that the top general spot he'd been promised was nowhere near second in command. The leader of the Black Peastones, Jeff Fort, was a 22-year-old who'd been in the game for 10 years already. To him, 18-year-old Larry was an inexperienced kid. Whenever Larry tried to speak up, Fort snapped at him, sit down. He ran half of the Gangster Stones Alliance, but he was expected to answer to Fort and the rest of the high-ranking Black Peace Stones. And now, apparently, the Black Peace Stones were allowed to shoot down Larry's men, two blocks away from his family's house without any repercussions. That was the last straw. Just a few months after the merger, Larry pulled the Supreme Gangsters out of the Gangster Stone Alliance. He came out of the deal with even less members than he'd started with, since some of the Supreme Gangsters chose to stay behind with the Black Pea Stones. It was June of 1969. Once again, Larry was on his own. But just a few weeks later, he was approached by another potential ally, his old friend, David Barksdale. Coming up, we'll talk about how David helped Larry rise to the top. Now, back to the story. In June 1969, it had been a couple of years since Larry's legendary brawl with Shorty Freeman. Since then, Shorty and David's gang, the Black Disciple Nation, had changed their focus from crime to community activism. They'd seen what their cocaine and heroin trade was doing to their neighborhood. The addictions and overdoses were one thing, but the reckless gang violence that came along with it was getting too many young people killed. Less than a decade ago, they'd started these gangs as a way to earn money and protection for their disadvantaged communities, the same as the mob had done decades earlier. But in the end, they were only causing more problems. They weren't kids anymore. 
They were grown men, and it was time to take some responsibility. David had always been on good terms with Larry, even when his feud with his partner Shorty made an alliance impossible. Now, he came to Larry with a proposition. No more violence, no more bloodshed, and more opportunities for everyone. If the Black Disciples and the Supreme Gangsters merged, they'd number around 15,000 members. With David in charge and Larry as their second-in-command, they could turn their gangs into an organization as structured and controlled as the Mafia. Larry was still dating Wendy Jenkins, and Shorty still hated him for it. But after four years, he was willing to let the grudge rest. The Black Disciples and Supreme Gangsters were now the Black Gangster Disciple Nation. David was known as King David, and Larry, as his top commander, was called Prince Larry. Now the real work began. David and Larry kept their drug operations running, but they also opened legitimate businesses, including two restaurants and a gas station. They partnered with the Englewood Businessmen's Association to open free lunch programs and establish school truancy policies. The gang was even given a contract to oversee security for Wilson Junior College. Later that month, in June of 1969, the Black Gangster Disciples made peace with the Black Peace Stones and the city's other major gang, the Vice Lords. Together they formed a coalition they called the Lords, Stones, and Disciples, or LSD. The other gangs were on the same page. Ending the mayhem would be good for everyone. Together they were powerful enough to enact real change. The LSD coalition became a grassroots movement to be reckoned with. They marched with Jesse Jackson to pressure the city to hire more black construction workers. They picketed local businesses. They rallied at the city hall steps to end segregation. There in the middle of all of it was Prince Larry, wearing a dark blue beret, a symbol of the black militant movement. Ironically, as Chicago's gangs became a force for good, their drug activities only increased. They attracted the attention of narcotics traffickers from across the nation who came running to Chicago with offers to work together. Until now, Chicago's drug trade had been mainly controlled by the Italian mob. But in the late 60s, major suppliers turned their focus to the gangs in black communities. The result was a sudden flood of heroin, cocaine, and money. From his underground headquarters in a basement apartment at 67th and Halstead, Larry Hoover turned the Black Gangster Disciples into the most formidable drug operation in Chicago. He ran it like a true business, modeled after the mob that had controlled the city so successfully for decades. There was a strict hierarchy, with David and Larry at the top. Operations were tightly controlled and meticulously calculated. They wouldn't engage in violence unless it was necessary to protect their business interests. But if it became necessary, Larry could be merciless. At night, Larry left his basement lair in a fedora and cashmere coat. He took his girlfriend, Wendy, to drink and dance at nightclubs all over the South Side. For a while, Larry was on top of the world. He had more money and power than he'd ever dreamed of and their reach kept growing every day. But as the drug trade expanded, the city's peaceful gang coalition collapsed. The legal protections and job training programs they'd been fighting for never actually materialized. 
The sudden influx of drugs counteracted the community outreach programs David and Larry had set up. And rival groups were inevitably drawn back into the violence they'd been working so hard to avoid. In June of 1970, David and Larry were having a drink at a bar in Englewood. A group of Black Peace Stones arrived and opened fire with automatic rifles. David was shot in the side. Larry helped him out into his car and raced to the hospital. The bullet had hit David's kidney. He survived, but even after the wound healed, his kidney was irreparably damaged. David Barksdale was living on borrowed time. Over the next few years, the LSD coalition continued to falter and eventually disbanded. But the black gangster disciples only became stronger. Larry took care of any threats to his territory swiftly and viciously. He was arrested time and again. Aggravated assault, murder, attempted murder, but the charges never stuck. He was always able to dodge a conviction. Prince Larry was beginning to think he was invincible but it would only take one mistake to put his reign in jeopardy. It was February 21st, 1973, a cold night in Chicago. Larry Hoover was 22 years old and second in command of the Black Gangster Disciples, one of the city's most notorious gangs. Larry treated his drug operation like a legitimate business. He expected order, obedience, and discipline. When his men came to him with the news that three neighborhood kids had robbed his stash house, he had to send a message. That kind of behavior would not be tolerated. He passed the job on to Andrew Howard, his right-hand man, who'd been with him since he started out 10 years ago. He trusted Andrew to make sure the problem was taken care of quickly and quietly. That evening, Andrew tracked down the first of the three kids, 19-year-old William Young on a local college campus. He grabbed him and forced him into his car. At about 8 p.m., he pulled into a dark alley on the south side and shot Young six times in the head. Andrew went back to the crew at about 10 p.m. Larry and about 10 other gang members were already assembled. Andrew told them what had happened, pulled a gun from his holster, and told the men... This is the way we take care of business. That should have been the end of it. But Andrew had made a crucial mistake. He left behind a key witness. Young's friend, Joshua Shaw, had seen the kidnapping. Shaw was also one of the accomplices who robbed Larry's stash house. He knew exactly who had killed William Young, and he knew he was the next on the list. A few weeks later, Larry Hoover and Andrew Howard were both arrested. This wasn't the first time Larry had been charged with murder, and he knew exactly how to make the charges go away. Before the trial began, the key witness, Joshua Shaw, was found dead. But when the trial rolled around, the prosecution had another card to play. The police had strong-armed one of the top-ranking black gangster disciples into testifying that Larry had ordered William Young's murder, and Andrew had followed through with it. It was all over now. In November 1973, Larry and Andrew were both convicted and sentenced to 150 to 200 years in prison. Larry Hoover was just turning 23, 
and he would be locked up for the rest of his life in maximum security at Stateville Correctional Center, 20 miles outside of Chicago. The Chicago police thought they had finally disbanded one of the city's most dangerous gangs. They had no idea what Larry was capable of. Larry was appalled by the living conditions at Stateville. Rape and assault were rampant. The food was terrible. The dirty floors were infested with cockroaches. The guards didn't seem to care about the inmates at all. It was absolute chaos, just like the streets had been before Larry whipped his gang into order. Suddenly, Larry saw prison as an opportunity. There were already hundreds of black gangster disciples locked up at Stateville. The inmates who weren't already in gangs could be easily persuaded to join, the same way they'd recruited members on the outside, with the promise of protection and brotherhood. As long as you were with Larry, you didn't need to watch your back. Larry thrived in prison. His charisma and reputation drew people to him, and the more influence he gained, the easier it was to recruit followers. And as long as David Barksdale was running things on the streets, there was no reason Larry couldn't run his side of the business from behind bars. He turned the visiting room into his office, calling associates in to discuss narcotics deals on a regular basis. Larry rose to power in prison using the methods he'd learned from David. Lead with peace and prosperity, not fear and intimidation. He used his gang's power to unite the prisoners and discourage violence between inmates, as well as violence toward the guards. And in return, the warden was happy to grant him certain freedoms. His business meetings went on uninterrupted. All the while, Larry's own power was expanding. He was recruiting more black gangster disciples into his ranks every day. He even set up a smuggling ring to move heroin through the prison for the other inmates, of course. His gang was never allowed to touch the stuff. In 1974, David Barksdale died of kidney problems caused by the shooting four years earlier. The gang was left in the hands of his two highest-ranking associates, Larry and Shorty Freeman. The two men still barely tolerated each other. Ruling together was not an option. Instead, the group split. Shorty headed the Black Disciples, and Hoover took control of the other half, the Gangster Disciples. And just like that, Prince Larry had finally become King Larry. He was only 23. Even staring down 150 years in prison, he had limitless potential to rise. Where could he possibly go from here? Nothing was off limits. And the next turn Larry Hoover's life took would shock everyone, from the parole board to his own followers. Thanks again for listening to Kingpins. Join us next week to see how Larry Hoover kept his gang rising while locked away in prison and why he made an incredible turn from gang leader to political activist. You can find Kingpins and all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast directory. Many of you have asked how to help the show. And if you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. We'll see you next time. Kingpins was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Kingpins is written by Mandy Bassard and stars Kate Leonard and Howell Hargett. <laughs>